Here with Josh Terry, who runs the No Expectations newsletter on Substack. How's it going? We're here to talk about the kind of thing that's like for most people, it's like they're either into it or they're not. But you're like the only guy who just became a deadhead in the last like couple months. Not the only guy. Yeah, not the only. Oh, guy. I guess us too, huh? I did it Maybe too. The three of us. I don't even like right. them that much, but I I feel like I've assimilated every single bit of publicly available information about this band in the cultural <laughs> phenomenon. Like, I read, like, five different books. I listened to all the shows. I listened to all the shit. And I feel like, like, I read the subreddit, which we'll talk about, all the, the gold on the subreddit. Well, in the community, but I we truly, say the, I, uh, I learned all this shit. In the community, we say the subreddit is actually more important than the live shows. So you're, you're, you're totally yeah. caught up. <laughs> if you wanted to rank it in order of importance, it would be Cherry Garcia, the ice cream. Yep. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Then two would be the community, the sense of community. Three would be the live shows, and four would be the music. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, that's the first thing I learned, too. Um, yeah. The ice cream, pretty good. That's kind of was my gateway, like, as a kid. But I don't, I don't think I've I ever honestly, had it. I don't think I have either, but now I honestly, unironically want to try it because I've been reading about it. <laughs> it's so expensive. It's like seven bucks. But, like, so many kinds of ice cream are expensive. You Like, talenti, like, all those, like... Gourmet ice creams are so expensive now. I think that was my first introduction to knowing about Jerry Garcia was the, the flavor Cherry Garcia because neither of my parents were into the dead. If so, you remember when that ice cream dropped in 1987, you weren't there, man. I wasn't. <laughs> That's true. You weren't born yet. I wasn't there. Wait, I wasn't born yet. None I don't remember sorry. it and I wasn't there. Yeah, it's, it's weird because like my dad saw the dead a couple times, but he didn't tell me he saw the dead until like I got into the dead. He was like, yeah, it wasn't much. Like I was more into Jackson Brown and James Taylor back then. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. But um, yeah, Not too for far me, off for me, it was like kind of I it has been within the last year that I've gotten really into the dead, but it was sort of like. I don't know. I always kind of knew it was there. I like the those two records, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. And like, yeah, same. you know, like I heard Cornell 77 in college and thought it was cool, but it wasn't really like, oh, shit. Like I am a deadhead because most of the deadheads I met and there really weren't many kind of were just bad vibes. And I, you know, being an indie rock kid, I kind of put it off for a good chunk of my life. Part of it was like, one, I don't have time to like dive through all these live sets and 13 studio albums and like multiple decades of recorded and live material. But I don't know, something happened, something clicked. And I was like, I'm just going to start playing a show. And sure enough, I was hooked. It is good background music. And that sounds kind of insulting, but having those shows on, it's like, it's a level of music that's sort of, it's, it's pleasant to listen to and stuff does jump out to you, but it's not so engaging that you're like, you have to stop what you're doing. Yeah. I sort of in the same way I listen to like swing music or bebop. <laughs> you don't want to have like a massive emotional investment in it. You don't want to be listening to like, uh, you know, stuff that was, was super emotionally resonant to you as a 14 year old. Right. And like feel like that. Like you just want something that's like kind of pleasant, kind of fun, and you can put it on and it's like you don't have to get like too too sucked into it. Right. Cause like, you know, there is so much variation in the shows, but like when you have like a solid grasp of the songs, it's kind of like, all right, I can just put it on and 
do whatever I want. Yeah. But then like when you notice like, oh, this is a really cool version of like Eyes of the World, you can kind of get into that like heady zone and just be like, yeah, this is a great show. And then but go about your day. I think like one of the only contexts in which we've talked about this band before this month on this show is the idea that like culture broadly has kind of come around to the Grateful Dead now in the sense that everything is like infinite content all the time. And that's what they were always about in their own way of in a time when everyone's willing to listen to a hundred hours of podcasts. Why not listen to a hundred hours of Grateful Dead shows also, you know? Yeah. It's really crazy. Like I, that was another reason why I kind of avoided it for so long. Cause it's just like, who has the time? And it turns out I do. Um, <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. I think part of me like knew I would like it. And part of me was also scared of like, what would that say about me as someone who writes about music and, you know, feels like I have relatively good tastes and, you know, I like cool bands and it's just sort of like if I'm devoting three hours a day listening to a full Grateful Dead show, like what am I going to listen to and after that? And <laughs> turns out like yeah. I'm just really not listening to new bands as much as I normally would. So if you're a new band out there trying to get coverage, blame the Grateful Dead for getting you less attention. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing we were talking about on the stream yesterday when we were watching some of their shows is how like the the process of, of putting out all the live shows and then having fans select the best ones. It is sort of a workaround to being in the studio all day doing a thousand takes the way Steely Dan would have done, and then choosing the best one. It is sort of the same perfectionism almost. You're just doing it over 50 years, and then people are choosing the best take later. Yeah, sort of democratically. Yeah, in a weird way. It's almost like obsessive, obsessively redoing the songs. It's so funny you say that, because I feel like in a way, like bands that I wrote off when I was like a kid, like Steely Dan and the Grateful Dead are perfect examples. Like I got into Steely Dan like in college. And I think even though they make totally different music, I feel like that perfectionism and that kind of like psychoness about the whole Steely Dan or Grateful Dead experience kind of primed me to get into the Grateful Dead like 10 years later. Yeah, I guess they do have a similar philosophy in a certain sense. If you get rid of the live shows and and all the the cultural baggage, just the way they had like this this very cynical take on 50s, 60s Americana. Yeah. It was very it was very referential to like uh the American folk tradition and stuff and old jazz. Yeah. Like they did they both did um Mississippi Half Step Tootaloo or whatever, right? They did. The the Steely Dan covered Mississippi Half Step. Or they they covered some some shit like that, some Louis Armstrong thing. Hell yeah. Oh. But they were they were both sort of mining that that treasure chest of uh of American culture and then putting a cynical spin on it. Totally. I think to me, that's why the Grateful Dead was always like misrepresented. At least like their image doesn't really represent what they are to me for so long. Cause it's like the image is like, Oh, this really psychedelic band or whatever. But in fact, it's like plinky fifties music. You know what I mean? Like they're the most, this also sounds like backhanded, but I think it's true that they're like the most backward looking of the major sixties bands where it's like, we're just going to do Americana and like do little bluegrassy noodling and like, I don't know. Their they image. They sound like the band. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's they're the very same kind like, of shit as the band, band except rather they, than they like, jammed for longer. Yeah. yeah. Which is forward thinking in a way. That's sort of that. That's what postmodernism is. It's looking backward, getting rid of the constraints of time. Everything just becomes one flat thing that you can draw from. Yeah, yeah, and especially the and time we're in now is uh, that's just 
the only thing now is just pastiche of other genres. Yeah. I mean, the thing that the band are one of my favorite bands, but the thing that separates um, the Grateful Dead from the band is that only one guy in the band was American. And, you know, the band are a great band and they funneled all these American musical movements and its historical context into something really cool for and they toured with Bob Dylan. But the Grateful Dead did it for longer and they did it in kind of more jammy and weird ways, you know. And they were real Americans. Exactly. That's that's the yeah. <laughs> they were steeped in that tradition for real. Yeah. Even this though they were from California. Music podcast. I think California barely counts. Yeah, it doesn't. Because it, it has <laughs> some like fifty years ago it had very little history, especially in terms of music. Like, You're embracing uh, Sarah Palin's theory of what a real American is. The coast don't <laughs> <Yeah>. count. <laughs> but the, yeah, there isn't there isn't that much to draw from because you go back uh, like fifty years and then you're at the gold rush. Well, what was Liverpool's cool music jazz. community like before the Beatles? You know, like yeah. it was nothing. It's sort <laughs> it of like nothing. yeah, like the history is because of the Grateful Dead. I guess I guess that's only really to say that the only the only era where the only area where there's really this this giant well to draw from is the American South. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Where there's just so many layers of shit and like everywhere else you look back, like even in uh, like where I live, if you try to look at like Yankee music, it's like Quaker hymns. That's it. Yeah, totally. It's like Quaker hymns and then Aerosmith came out. (laughs) (laughs) The the Liverpool thing makes me think of uh, Alex. We talked about it in the past of like, being a contrarian who's really into like Merseyside music, but you hate the Beatles. Like, they were like the worst band in that scene, man. Yeah, I'm trying to think of one of those names of those people. I know the Mercy Beats, that was one of them. Yeah, you and I used to, we, we learned it all and now we forgot it all because none of those bands are worth remembering. But there had to be that contrarian in that scene at that time, right? Like in every music scene, you have that guy who's like, oh, the best band in this scene is not that good. People should be listening to the ones that are shittier. Yeah, I think that's happened with every band that broke out of a scene in history. Yeah. People think of them as like, oh, that shitty band that we all turned on, like Green Day or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we. I remember back when they came out and I was like, they're the fifth best band in our local scene in San Francisco or wherever. And then they blew up and we were all like, fuck them. We don't even like them. <laughs> and then people just listen to them. And they're like, oh, this is, it's this great band. Yeah. I, I, I do love thinking about like the early 1960s version of me being like, fuck the Beatles. I only listen to Jerry Lee and the Pacemakers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys just couldn't write their own songs. The Beatles got so lucky. They weren't even doing it back then when they were doing the Mercy Beat crap. And then they had three genius songwriters in the band by mistake. Yeah. And all those other bands didn't have shit. None of them, Jerry or the Pacemakers. Yeah. The Grateful Dead is interesting because like most of the band wrote songs, but they also like wrote songs with lyricists that they had, like Robert Hunter and John Perry Barlow. And it's weird to think of like how collaborative, you know, you have five, six people in the band at any given time and they're all just writing. How come they couldn't write lyrics? I don't know. I think they sometimes not want to. Didn't Jerry Garcia write some of the lyrics? Yeah, they all wrote some. It was sort of like, it felt like it was a collaboration, but it was mostly for Jerry's songs, it was Robert Hunter. And for Bob's songs, it was uh, John Perry Barlow. It was like this uh, libertarian okay. kid from Wyoming who, yeah. Yeah, I think he ran for president. He did, yeah. And he denounced Trump right before he died. Right. 
which kind of, it kind of cancels out all the libertarian stuff. You got to get that in. Yeah. (laughs) Like just for the record, I don't, I'm not, I'm not into this. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a weird vibe, you know, cause it's like the Grateful Dead are a really a libertarian band. If you think about it in so many senses of the word. Yeah. Like we kind of got into that on the stream yesterday of like, if you read their wiki, it's like Tucker Carlson and, uh, and Coulter are big fans and stuff. Like there's a lot of very dubious uh, interest in them, but I think it is because like, I don't know, putting aside the actual like culture of their fans, like the sort of scene of like Shakedown Street or whatever. It's like the actual message of the band is so broad and vague and essentially apolitical that like it does kind yeah, it's of not invite even that, anything. It's like songs about cowboys. Yeah. yeah. Like- <laughs> it's not, you would think it would be about peace and love and stuff, but it's, it's mostly like old songs about cowboys. Yeah. You got like Fucking. half a dozen songs about playing cards. You know, just poker games <laughs> yeah. going awry. It's Being great. a rambling, gambling man. Yeah, but you do get like a lot of, I don't know. It's a lot of the lyrics. Which is sort of, that That was the 1800s version of the hippie thing. Totally. <laughs> like the the cowboy and the the being out on the range and stuff. Yeah. But that was like the, that was the, uh, the accepted canonized way to refer to that stuff metaphorically. Yeah, totally. I mean, the libertarian thing isn't so much about like their fans or sort of like the lyrical content of the songs. It's kind of more about just like, how laissez-faire they kind of just operated their entire career like they didn't care if people taped their shows they kind of everyone kind of got paid the same they kind of just sort of kind of let their fans do what they wanted to until it got to a point where they kind of just couldn't without it not being safe and they just did that for decades of just kind of yeah whatever it's, it's kind of weird of like uh there is this sort of laissez-faire attitude, but there's at the same time, there's like a crass commercialism that goes right alongside it of they, they marketed and branded everything they could. Yeah. Um, and then actually the, the Cherry Garcia story maybe is like the ideal uh, example of that, of like Ben and Jerry made the flavor without actually asking for his permission. Mm-hmm. And in theory, he's like more or less okay sometimes when people do that. So it's really funny to read it on the official Ben and Jerry site because they elide all of the specifics of what happened. <laughs> They're just like, we sent him the first eight pints we made and we heard back from his publicist and his wife that he gave it the thumbs up. But it's like, clearly that's not really what happened because he just didn't know you started making it. And eventually there was enough pressure on him to be like, you need to at least take some control over your likeness or else everyone's just going to make this random shit without asking you. So he had to like sue them to create um, some kind of like licensing agreement. And then he started making like $400,000 a year off of it. Yeah, it was like six figures, like 200K. And he wanted to quit the Grateful Dead just so he could live, live off the ice cream money, which is kind of yeah, sick. Yeah, should have done that. You had started talking about that, Alex, of like, he's just playing like, well, he's just like eating haagen doing heroin and playing like early Mac computer games all day at the end of his life. Yeah, he didn't want to do anything. He's such a, kind of such a frustrating guy because he was, he refused to make decisions. He refused to commit to anything. He just kind of did whatever, whatever the easiest thing to do was at the time. And usually that was going on tour, doing more shows because you have this huge apparatus of people who all depend on you. Right. Yeah. It structures and like your the life. The second he died, certainly. it fell apart and like he, he didn't want to do that, but then it was also killing him. And like to be able to deal with not being able to handle that amount of power on him, he, he drowned himself in ice cream and smoking heroin and crack and ruined the whole thing anyway. So like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's such a bummer. And I mean, as much as I love the Grateful Dead songs and like I think the story of the band is incredible, it, it's wild. Like how many lives were just ruined by keeping this apparatus moving. You know what I mean? Like 
not just Jerry, like there are several keyboard players who, you know, yeah. passed away on like increasingly gruesome circumstances. And there are, you know, roadies who died and roadies now, like none of them seem to like each other at this point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Dead and Company is just two members of the Grateful Dead. Four are living and four, you know, have no, they're still getting paid for the sphere, but they have no no interest in ever being on stage anymore with the other two. Wait, who's on stage still? It's Bob Weir and Mickey Hart. Bill isn't doing it? No, Bill stopped uh, Dead and Company, I think in 2022. I've never seen Dead and Company, so I, I'm not quite sure. I think it was like 2022. This guy, Jay Lane, um, stepped in and he's like a younger guy. Uh, from what I've heard, like they still have two drummers. They still have two drummers. Oh, why do they have two drummers? <laughs> they should let Mickey Hart carry it because he wasn't on the 72 tour. True. But I do There's think that whole album that's only Bill on that album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bill was, yeah, from like 71 to 74. It was all Bill. Yeah. And I kind including of, like the Grateful Dead movie. Right. Of, uh, so the Grateful Dead movie, which I told you to watch like a month or two ago, like yeah. that Mickey Hart is like, joins them for like the very last song featured in that movie. And it was like so intense because, you know, uh, I feel like you guys must have talked about this on the stream, but Mickey Hart left the band because his dad uh, was the manager of the Grateful Dead for a while and just stole a thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the band and then skipped town. And then like Mickey Hart left the band because he was so ashamed and like wouldn't you like that's so embarrassing your dad is the manager of the band and he just scams everyone yeah it's funny how often that happened back then like during the stream we were also talking about how pink floyd got scammed out of all their money in the 70s and then also like uh you know paul mccartney tried to get linda's dad to be their manager at the end of the band's career it's like right. that shit happens <laughs> so much yeah, like they didn't have like cryptocurrency to scam them or shit like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me, that's one of the other uh, little things I wanted to bring up is uh, a couple of years ago, the Rock Hall of Fame had this Jerry Garcia exhibit of his artwork that he was doing in the early 90s on his Macintosh toward the end of his life. And actually, I think it's pretty interesting for that time period. Like it's better than just like MS Paint stuff. Like it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, but, it's um, interesting. I wouldn't pay for it necessarily, but yeah. it's cool. He was having fun. Yeah, I think the the way that the Rock Hall handled that exhibition though is so dubious to me. Of first of all, there's a computer there. It's like a Mac, a Power Mac seventy two hundred, and I was pulling this up on the Grateful Dead Reddit, and people are just like, "Oh, it's cool that it's his computer." And then someone points out he died before the seventy two hundred came out. This is akin to the Kane from Citizen Kane joke in The Simpsons. They just got some random shitty nineties computer being like, "He kind of used one a little bit like this." Like, why would you exhibit that? Do you think that, like, because there's the Northern California roots of the Apple Corporation and the Grateful Dead Corporation, do you think, like, Steve from Apple gave Jerry, like, an early? Or is the timeline just so far that there's no yeah, way I don't that know. Jerry could have gotten, like, an early copy of whatever this is? That is interesting. Was? It I'm is, like, a local boy one. done good, you know? Yeah. Because I'm sure that, like, I don't know. I'm sure that, like, in the... 1995 equivalent of like sending someone an advanced copy of your record existed with like computers yeah, and for, sneakers for Macintosh, and, totally. and cherry Garcia ice cream. Yeah. Got another thing. Okay. One of the other comments on this on Reddit is bet if you turn that keyboard upside down and shook it, you could roll a fatty with everything that falls out. Smiley face. <laughs> oh, it's like, no, it would be Hagen dazs all over that keyboard if it was his. 
Yeah. Yeah, it would be it would just be cigarettes. Cigarette, yeah. yeah. Wendy's wrappers, Hagen Nuss. And the Wendy's There'd thing. Be cigarette burns all over the floor because he would just he would smoke heroin and then just lay down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he liked to chill when he wasn't on stage. And I think towards like, I don't know, watching some of the and listening to some of the very late nineties shows from the Grateful Dead, like Jerry was kind of just not as there as he has been in the past like previous decades. Yeah. Unsurprising. Know? Yeah. Yeah, he didn't want to be there, but he had, he saw yeah, no to. way out. Yeah, he was quiet quitting the Grateful Dead. Yeah, everybody <laughs> would be mad at him, and he couldn't really do anything else. Right. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, it's like when I kind of decided to like, all right, I'm going to make an effort to get into the Grateful Dead. I watched this uh, like prime video, like four part documentary called Long Strange Trip about the band. Oh, I've been meaning oh, yeah, to I watch that. that. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. But it's like, you know, the first couple episodes, you're like, you're so in it. You're like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And then like everyone dies or it gets like kind of just too much for everyone. And then the last episode is just so sad. And you're like, is it is it good to like still enjoy this music? Like, should I fully dive into this? Like, is this a bad thing? <laughs> It's definitely not like uplifting to me. Yeah. It is very compelling, but the story is just very fucked up. And they like the people getting scammed and losing money on tours and the roadies dying and like the the big speaker setup that could have killed anybody. I mean, they left off. I I, did they get into like the Vince Wellnick stuff in that? Like, I I don't quite remember. Like, there are a couple of things. I don't know if it was in the documentary, but I did. uh, I read a bunch of articles about him. Yeah. Like, Bad luck for that guy. He joined. He joined the band, and he was part of the Grateful Dead. But then, like the next year, they break up, and then you're nobody again. Right. And he was kind of the most vocal person to be like, "Let's get the band back together." And everyone was kind of off doing their own thing and mourning Jerry. And yeah, it's just like yeah, for people who don't know, like uh, like ten years later after Jerry died, or maybe even sooner than that like he ended up 2006 yeah it was 10 years after 11 years but he ended up slitting his throat in front of his wife man just like honestly such, yeah in many ways this just occurred to me but it kind of parallels wilco with jay bennett where like when he got kicked out of wilco he was back to playing shows for nobody and then he eventually just kind of killed himself through abusing pills and everything like very similar trajectory yeah it's just it's just That's a, rock and roll it's just a shame like you know yeah, and also it just feels ugh. some of it is just like as someone who's only been in it for like a little less than a year, like some of it is like, oh, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> but other times it's just like you listen to certain songs and you're just like, damn, like this is exactly in my wheelhouse. And I never I don't know. I never thought I would get this deep into it. And ultimately, as time passes, all that remains is the music. So it becomes easier to accept it for what it is, maybe. Fair. Yeah. Like totally. it kind of speaks for itself over time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, I don't know. There have been people in my life who have gone through phases and I've kind of like, I don't know, treated them the same way that I would like someone who, I don't know, gets really into like, wow, bad piercings or bad tattoos. And you're sort of like, all right, buddy, <laughs> like the good for you. <laughs> I don't know how long this will last. And I feel like that's how my friends are treating me now, but I don't know. <laughs> Something something just shifted where I like just sat down one day, heard uh, a really good version of Althea, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And that's what happened to John Mayer. Exactly, and I found out that that is exactly that song, exactly <laughs> Althea that did it for John Mayer. Like I told that origin story to a friend of mine, and he was like, "That's how John Mayer got into the dead." And I'm like, 
fuck, really? <laughs> it's Maybe really before you, you're a poser. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, it was Touch of Grey. Really? Yeah, I think it just came on. And I was like, well, that's a pretty good song. It is a good song. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like what you were saying earlier, Josh, where like, you know, 10 plus years ago, I listened to like Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. Oh, you know what? Okay, this is, I don't know if this is embarrassing or not, actually, but I think I listened to American Beauty at first because of Freaks and Geeks, where it's used in the final episode. Yeah, it's Ripple, right? Yeah, yeah. And like she gets the album from the teacher or whatever. I think that was why I listened to them the first time. And I was like, oh, there's a bunch of good songs on here. But I never really like dug deeper than that, you know? Yeah. You know, like any fan of the dead will tell you that like there are great songs on the studio records, but it's not the thing to check out. And I sort of was just like, I have always been kind of opposed to live records for like most of my adult life. Like I would just rather listen to something made in a studio, something intentional. And I just feel like at the time I felt like crowd noise was just distracting and I didn't really give a shit, but yeah, they're right. The live records are really where it's at. Yeah, maybe on that note, we should jump into some of these songs and we'll just kind of play them in the background and talk over them here. But let's start with the uh, China Cat Sunflower. Yes. Yeah, so 74 Des Moines County Fairgrounds. That's where all the politicians eat the big hot dog, right? Right. Famous yeah. place. All the fans listening to this right now are just eating a huge fried stick of butter. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. Pointing at the big cow. Yeah, this is 74, one drummer dead, just Billy. Yeah, I think this has become one of my favorite songs of theirs. It's just like a really good little groove. This is a very unintuitive thing to come up with playing, improvising. Yeah. It sounds like something I would come up with in MIDI. All these interlocking parts. That's a good point. I guess uh, something else that's worth mentioning that we talked about in the stream is our revelation that, like, there's so many people who are our age who are like, man, I wish I was born in the 60s because I like this music. But Jerry Garcia is really the opposite where he would have been so much happier in our time. Like all he wanted to do was play on his computer and like he would have been a great uh, podcaster and 2020s musician. Yeah, if you gave him a DAW, if you gave him Pro Tools, it probably would have solved it. Yeah. Because he just wanted to be on the Macintosh computer all day. So I think that's what he was, that's what he was reaching for. He would have loved Halo. Yeah. That too. Because that is how you get into that stream of creativity. That's why they hated the studio, because it was all plugging in chords and cutting tape and all this bullshit. It was yeah, all the shit the Beatles loved. Yeah. yeah, like they that's what they hated. But now you can click three things and put a backing track together and play over it. And you're like, it's just everything's so easy. They do everything for you. Yeah. So I chose this China Cat because it, you know, kind of just captures the band kind of firing on all cylinders, doing a song that like even non-fans of the Grateful Dead might have heard before, like in a way that feels kind of just like a great rock show. And this is like yeah. when they were touring with something called the Wall of Sound, which was this like crazy, it was like kind of six sound systems in one. It was sound systems stacked on top of sound systems that the band built and painstakingly, it was probably like 600 something speakers made up this thing. 
It took them a full day to like assemble it. And then when, then the next day they would play a show. It would take a day to like take it down, transfer it to the next place. So they really kind of bankrupted the band in 74. That's kind of why they had to take a break. But a lot it's of the, of the shows, worst ideas of all time. Really, yeah. I mean, yeah <laughs> they I had to have like multiple crews of guys on Coke working 20 hour days. Yeah. To even have this shit set up and taken down. But it, I respect their their wackiness of just willingness to try any kind of off the wall idea. Yeah. Yeah, they did it so no one else had to. Yeah, it's true. Because Pink even, Floyd probably would have done this. They would have made a wall of speakers. Yeah. yeah. And it would have bankrupted them. I think too, Josh, right? Like they bankrupted themselves even more with Jerry Garcia making the movie where he spent so much money on the animations and cutting together all this tape and stuff. Yeah. It only compounded. Yeah. That's another thing where if it was on the computer, it would have taken like two weeks. Oh, exactly. But again, it's like, it's good that he did it because it is just such a clean document of what they were about and he was smart to do it. And kind of like we were saying during the stream, it's like, uh, even though their music doesn't feel very cutting edge, the things that they were doing around the music, like doing this multi-camera show with this great soundboard recording, that stuff was much more cutting edge than like the aesthetics of the music. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's dead on in a lot of ways. Like a lot of this stuff, you know, if you're a fan of like rock music, a lot of it isn't like inventing the wheel, but some of it is, I think like the, when you take the Grateful Dead's discography as like its own kind of one cohesive project, the kind of entirety of it and the kind of variation between the sets, between the songs from year to year and from show to show is really interesting. And just how fans gravitated towards those kind of small differences from night to night and sometimes drastic differences really kind of tells the story of the dead. We think maybe we should skip ahead to Althea here so yeah. that we can have a have a John Mayer. Let's have our John Mayer come moment. to the Grateful Dead experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, Charles, I know you haven't watched the documentary, but in the in the documentary, Al Franken says that this song, not just this song, but this specific version, is his all-time favorite Dead moment. And like okay, he's kind of on, he's kind of onto something. John Mayer heard this, he just started making guitar guy faces uncontrollably. <laughs> I did too. I don't know. Um, so <laughs> I don't know where you guys are at. What have been your favorite Grateful Dead songs that you've listened to independently from this? Uh, I like all the non-studio album tracks on Europe 72. Okay, right on. I think those are all their best songs. He's Gone, Tennessee Jed, yeah. um, Ramble on Rose. Yeah, those songs are great. I feel like I'm still in a more basic mode over here where it is things like uh, China Cat Sunflower. Mm. And I, I see you have Sugar Magnolia on the playlist too. Like that's one of the shows I've been listening to, like the Venetia one. Yeah. There's a bunch of good stuff on there. Yeah, that show is incredible. And that was kind of one of the moments where I was like, oh, like I think I really love the dead is hearing that. Um, yeah. The, the Venita show is, we'll get to it. But uh, I also didn't want to just pick only Jerry Garcia songs. Like, Bob is great, but, like, 
for new people, and for me especially, it was kind of the Jerry songs that got me into it. But several Bob songs are my favorite. Yeah, I'm point. not like familiar enough with them yet to know the difference, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously I can hear their voices, but I don't know like what what um, distinguishes like their style from one another, really. As, as a vocalist, I think Jerry's a little more tasteful. Bob is the one who does all the cowboy songs and he can get... You know, yeah. if you hear a song like "Looks Like Rain," you can get a little, little hammy. But yeah, Looks I was like gonna Rain say in really the good. Grateful Dead movie, one of those that's like that is like one more Saturday night, where like it opens with like a really cool riff, but then it just becomes like super hokey too. Yeah, yeah. it turns into pure dad rock. Yeah. yeah, which I guess works great on stage in the '70s, but listening to it, it's like, oh, this just sounds like Bad Company or something. Yeah. yeah I, this is a common complaint among deadheads, but like if you're like listening to a set before you fall asleep and then like one more Saturday night is like the last song, <laughs> it like totally wakes you up. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I don't want us to forget to do this. It just popped in my mind now. Alex, you got to share that uh, incredible Reddit post you found from the Grateful oh, Dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let me pull that up. I guess so, okay, we so were, this began, we were wondering if Cheech and Chong are fans of the Grateful Dead. And apparently Tommy Chong posted in 2021 that he was just getting into them. I was like, how is that possible? It's so weird. Yeah. Uh, but here's the post. Cheech and Chong should have done set break acts. How funny would of it been during a dead show in the late 70s and early 80s to have Cheech and Chong doing their characters wonder on stage like they're super messed up and so funny shit. It would have been hysterical. When your mind it in an altered state, seeing something like that would have been mind blowing. Yup, that's right. And I don't think it was a joke because I <laughs> delved deep into it and the guy was posting about like mosquito bites he had and I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. a sincere post. It is so weird that Cheech and Sean weren't involved in that community at all. Yeah. It's probably good because it would have been, it would have pushed them just over the edge. Like they're already just teetering on the edge of corny mass market stoner culture that's past its sell by date. Like the, most of the Grateful Dead merch functions as that. It's just so perverted into something that's like meaningless. But but Cheech and Chong, that would have really pushed it over the edge. I agree. My theory is that Cheech and Sean probably wanted to be a part of that scene, but I think the dead were like, nah, we're not going to invite <laughs> Keep you all backstage. Keep them at arm's length. Yeah, no, like, they could have gotten real comedians. They could get Lenny Bruce or whoever. True. I mean, there's yeah, a story Eric about Lee. how, like, the dead uh, in the 80s, they, like, took Bob Dylan on tour, and then, like, um, Bob Dylan eventually, like, asked to join the Grateful Dead, and... Phil Lesh in the band meeting was like, I don't want Bob Dylan in the band. And then Bob Dylan <laughs> was never a full-time member of the Grateful Dead. So I feel like... What would he add? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think he would have, like... I think he had a lot of fun on those tours Lyrics in the 80s. Lyrics and songwriting, you know? Yeah. It would just be... It would be like a hybrid band, which yeah. would be kind of yeah. good. It would be like an Adam Lambert Queen type of thing. Yeah. I mean, in that Beatles, the Peter Jackson Beatles documentary, there's that scene where George Harrison says that he asked Dylan to join the Beatles in 68. Yeah, it would be it would be good for tours. It would be like the band, uh, the band Bob Dylan tour in 74. Yeah. He could just join different bands and it would be that tour. But yeah. if you're that band, it would be it would be so weird. It would feel like he was taking over and then he doesn't really 
he's not really an improviser. Yeah, he, he doesn't nothing do great to do solos. if he's not singing. <laughs> just I mean, strum a couple chords. Yeah. You're just kind of being his backing band for half of it. Yeah, I mean, they they did that in 87. Um, and the some of the shows are really good, but like the Dylan and the Dead live album that the two of them released is like they chose the worst cuts. And I think it's like, I might be wrong here, but I think it's because Dylan just didn't want to release any of the like really good kind of classic songs <laughs> that they covered together. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we watched a little bit of that uh, on the stream yesterday. We were watching him do Queen Jane approximately, which is one they didn't put on the live album. Yeah. Um, and it was like, to me, it was like what you would expect them to make at that time. Like it's like not bad, but not yeah. amazing either. It was like, oh, this is okay. Should we move on to Sugar Magnolia? Yeah, let's do it. So we've been talking a lot about ice cream in this episode. This show only happened because of yogurt, funnily enough. Um, so oh. they're friends with this Oregon yogurt creamery, whatever you want to call it, um, called Nancy's Yogurt, which is still around. And uh-huh. something happened. I think it was something with taxes because it was the early 70s and hippies. But they're, the yogurt place, N- Nancy's, needed a lot of money. So the dead agreed to like play to 20,000 people in 1972, charge $3 a ticket. And that's kind of like the reason that this show happened, which is really funny. Yeah, interesting. There's like a huge history of the Grateful Dead and snacks. Save the yogurt. Yeah. That's what this band stood for. <laughs> yogurt. This song is mid to me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite skippable, but it's, uh, I don't know. Fair. I do feel like it is like the most accessible Bobby song that's not like trucking, which I have included here. Like, I don't know. Bob can usually does like, he's kind of the guy who takes on most of the covers. Like he'll do a Johnny Cash, Big River, uh, El Paso by Marty Robbins, Mama Tried by Merle Haggard. He'll do the Chuck Berry covers that are like kind of in every show for some reason. Um, we were talking about how some of their songs are like meme songs, like El Paso and uh, and Big Iron are now memes. Really? What do you mean by that? Uh, I, I think it was TikTok. There are a lot of AI covers like SpongeBob singing Big Iron. I don't know where exactly it came from. Whoa. But it's kind of funny that like those were the songs that they were covering a lot, and they also did uh, "Eco Eco." Oh yeah, that's the one they got Barney to jump on bass for. Yeah, and they had Barney come on stage, wow. jumping around to it, and like <laughs> "Eco Eco." That's another one that that blew up on TikTok. They put it in Fortnite. Yeah, it's funny they were ahead of the curve on that. They were already treating it as sort of a meme-ish song, having Barney play on it. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. like there's there's so much overlap there, and then yeah. you combine I, that with like the communal nature of the community or whatever, and it's you you. You could kind of draw a line a little bit. So this is probably a good time to mention that, like, I am so deep in it that I am going to the Sphere for a couple of the Dead & Company shows in May. And I'm just, like, so nervous that, like, you know, I spent hundreds of dollars to get a ticket to the show. I pay for the flights to Vegas, the hotel, everything. I, I go to the Sphere. And then the first thing I hear is like Ico Ico or like yeah. Victim or the Crime or like one of my least favorite Grateful Dead songs. And, you know, I 
part of me because I spent money to go to Vegas my first time ever to see John Mayer and Dead and Company. Like, I kind of hope that happens to, like, prove a lesson to myself. Yeah, it'll chasten you. <laughs> okay. So, Sugar Magnolia. I love this song. You think it's mid. Totally fine. Why don't we move on to Franklin's Tower, which I think is, like, a fan favorite, but it's slowly become, like, my favorite Grateful Dead song. And these two versions are sort of, like, kind of top two all-timer for me. The Blues for Allah is my favorite studio album. Oh, that one is its just, it's excellent. I think they peaked there. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, I appreciate that they bust out songs that you don't want to hear sometimes. Like the, the most analogous thing that I'm into, which I've always been aware of, is Animal Collective of like, without ever having been into the Grateful Dead, I can recognize in myself that I'm always just like, oh, you know, the version of uh, No More Running that Animal Collective was doing last year is the best version ever, you know? The mm-hmm. version of Chocolate Girl they did on the Merriweather Tour is the definitive version. So I, I definitely feel that in my own way. <laughs> They're sort of the American Grateful Dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Animal Collective are also really, they're huge deadheads. And well, I think famously two of, of them love the Grateful Dead and two of them are indifferent to the Grateful Dead. True. There's also a guy who's a bear <laughs> in both yeah. bands. There's the bear and then there's the panda bear. Right. True. They definitely are self-consciously similar in the way that their live shows are deliberately very different from their studio albums. Definitely intentional. And they definitely encourage that culture of taping their shows as an homage to the dead. But something I only learned about Animal Collective recently is that, and I would not have guessed this, the thing they were really into bootlegs of when they were like in high school and met was pavement. I had no idea there was like a pavement bootlegging culture. Who wants bootlegs of that? Yeah, they can't it's even so play weird correctly me. on their studio albums. <laughs> but yeah, like Deacon and those guys would just have all these cassette tapes of pavement live shows. Maybe they were better live. I saw Pavement when they did their like tour um, at the Chicago Theater. I think it was 2022 or yeah, it was 2022. Yeah, yeah. They were the amazing. It was like actually, I, I really liked them too. I saw them in like 2011 or 2012. Whenever was the other time they reunited, I saw them play with Broken Social Scene. Oh hell yeah! Uh, and I thought it was really good. Yeah. I guess if you hear the songs from the first two albums with a normal drummer who knows how to play, yeah, that's it would be thing. pretty good. Yeah, the thing is, like, they're all older and better at their instruments and stuff, so they've just tightened everything. Like, they're just, like, a good band, you know? True, yeah. Um, do, you, do you remember that uh, the twins in the, that band, The National, did this huge compilation of Grateful Dead covers? Yeah, I, I listened to that when it came out, and I just, like, sifted through and found all the bands that I like and listened to those ones, you know? Yeah, so Stephen Malcolmus did China Rider on that. So China Cat Sunflower, okay. which always goes into I Know You Rider, that, that yeah. folk song they interpolated. It's pretty good. Maybe it was like Kurt Vile did Box of Rain where it was good, but it's just like exactly the same as that song anyway. Like it was already good the way it was. The War on Drugs did Touch of Grey and it really kind of just proved that Touch of Grey just sounds like a War on Drugs song in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, Did funny. they make it longer? <laughs> they did. That would make sense. That's usually what it, what it turns out to be. Like they take an 80s song, they take like Young Turks by Rod Stewart 
and they make it 13 minutes <laughs> and cut out most of it. <laughs> Maybe it sounds good if you're on like ketamine or something. I don't know. But for them, they just, their songs all go on for too long and it's yeah. just like a, a very basic 80s groove. Yeah, I agree. And it feels like a, a half finished song you're working on. I don't know. I'm more of a Kurt Vile guy than a, a into them, but it's like Kurt Vile has the same problem sometimes where he has, some of his best songs are like nine minutes long, but then other times it's like, all right, I don't need to hear this shit right now. Yeah. War on Drugs, though, they did win that beef with Mark Kozilek because he got oh, me too, and yeah. they didn't. True. Yeah. Everyone hates him, so maybe they're not car commercial music. I like that thing that happened in 74, 75, where every right, white rock band had to get funky. <laughs> they all did it at the same time. It's kind of like how every pop star right now is making a country album. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because like there's there are songs in the Grateful Dead's catalog. Like they covered Dancing in the Streets for most of their career. And it's so yeah. funny to see how the 60s version changes. And then as the... The longer you get into the 70s, the more, like, gapped up the covers get. It gets so <laughs> disco. It gets so, so ridiculous. Um, yeah. Prog disco. That's my sweet spot. Hmm. That's what I want to hear most of all. And they hit that in 77, that cover of Dancing on the Street on Cornell 77. Right. Very good. Yeah. What do you think? Maybe we should move on to another one here. Yeah. Let's you want to just the, keep going in order here to the... Let's do the other one. Okay, sure. This is the uh, show after Cornell 77. This is this is the okay. Franklin's Tower that I was like, this is my favorite Franklin's Tower, but it's it's 17 minutes, which is not really suitable for a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's its own podcast. Yeah. All right, why don't we move on? I think this is like a who's on first situation. When I say the other one, not the other Franklin's Tower, the oh, song. Just the literally other the other one. <laughs> the other one Oops. from the Fillmore Auditorium, 1969. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> so 60s, uh, the dead were kind of like a blues psych band. And this is kind of the song where they kind of really lean into like the psyche garage rock kind of stuff. Yeah, it's fun. I haven't really listened to much of the 60s stuff. I like their first album. I like The Golden Road a lot. Yeah, that sounds great. It's very uncharacteristic, but that's a great song. That's when they were just doing Speed. Yeah, it, it, it feels like a really funny song to say is like your favorite Grateful Dead song to fans. Like I, you know, when I talk to like Queen fans, I'm like, oh yeah, my favorite song is Cool Cat. And it's the song that just does not sound like Queen. People get so mad when I say that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what my favorite Queen song would be. I don't like them that much. Me neither. Yeah, me neither. I mean, like, that's another band where, like, I respect them, but I just don't want to listen to most of their work. Yeah. Actually, it would be stuff off Queen 2. Probably the March of the Black Queen. Most of that is good. Yeah. Yeah, this is cool. I need to check out this era more. Yeah, so they're the first keyboardist in the dead, uh, this guy named Pigpen, Ron McKiernan. He was sort of like the first frontman of the dead. Like he would just kind of do these blues covers that were really fun. Um, but it's it's really wild to like listen to a full show from like 1969 or 1968 when just like 
You know, right after Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, they kind of just became a totally different band. Yeah. Is it kind of like Fleetwood Mac in that sense where no one cares about the stuff they did before they really had, like, their lineup locked in? I mean... There's just always an element of that in there. Yeah, I think, like, there are people who, like, feel like the Grateful Dead ended when Pigpen died. Like, there are old heads who, like, feel like Europe 72 and onward, or, like, after Europe 72 is kind of, like, not worth checking out because they just love the Pigpen era of the Grateful Dead so much. It's so strange. But no, the Pigpen era is great. It's just, like, I kind of like the 70s soft rock, and I also like a lot of the, like, Brent Midland 80s stuff, too. Like, I think every era is great and has its own charms. And that's kind of, like, why it's been so fun to get into the band. Because it's, like... Yeah, for sure. I feel like people who are, like, very, I don't know, um, not into the Grateful Dead would probably just be into, like, a specific year or two of the Grateful Dead. Because they've just kind of became a different band with each different era. Yeah, that is sort of the best way to be. Pigpen was sort of... He was one of those guys that was, he had a good time in the early 60s, the same way like Brian Jones did, or Paul Butterfield. The guys who were like the white guy who could sing with soul and play harmonica, and he knew all the the Muddy Water stuff, and Sonny Boy Williamson, and Howlin' Wolf. And then by the late 60s, no one really wants to hear from that guy anymore. Mm -hmm. Everyone's on, like Jagger and Richards have taken over with original pop songs. No one really wants to hear the blues standards anymore and they just kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah. It happened very quickly. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Pigpen was just sort of like his health issues. Like, you know, I feel like Pigpen would have stayed in the band if he didn't, you know, drink so much and didn't have all these, like, health issues. I don't know, it's, it's such a sad story, but it's also, at a certain point, like, the band really kind of just shedded the blues stuff for for a good chunk of it. And part of that was because of Pigpen's health, but I think another part of that was that they were just into these kind of spaced out jams and getting really good at their instruments that like Pigpen could just not keep up with, you know, either as a front man or as an organ player. And he wasn't doing psychedelics. No, he was the, yeah, they had two keyboardists in like the late 60s, Tom Constantin, who was like a Scientologist weirdo that didn't really last very long. And then they had Pigpen, and none of those guys did any psychedelics, which is a vibe killer for the rest of them. Yeah, it seems almost weird now. Yeah. But it, when they were first discovering that stuff, like if you... The same thing happened with the Beatles, where I think Paul didn't want to do it, and he did it later. Yeah, he waited like an additional album cycle. Now yeah. it seems so weird, because it's like all the, the LSD stuff has been so thoroughly integrated into the culture that you can be into psych you can play psychedelically and never have done that even though it yeah, probably helps sure. yeah. but back then it like you you had to do it yeah. it was like the style of music was so closely connected to the drugs at that point so we could also skip around in this one i feel like the jam kind of goes on yeah. for a long time and then the song starts or we can just move on to friend of Let's the just devil just move on yeah, yeah which one do you want to do out of these two the top um, one or the well this one? one is kind of the one where i put two just because like i think it's important to play like, at sure. least, like, the first couple minutes of both. This is, what, 72? Yeah. Four-minute Friend of the Devil. Fast-paced. Everyone kind of knows this song, even if you don't like the dead. Yeah, for sure. This was one I was way into when I listened to American Beauty yeah. back in the day. I out from the window, I was 
Another interesting thing that happened in the late 60s was people were so done with like the blues purism and digging into the blues. I guess that just got, it got old. Right. And it switched to country. Yeah. That's what Bob Dylan did. That's what the, the Beatles did, sort of, the band. George Harrison more. True. Yeah, I also think part of that had to do with this sort of like, I don't know, um, pressure to start writing songs. Because it was like Dylan and the Beatles were both kind of like, oh, this is really interesting because look, these famous musicians are writing their songs, which was back then a novelty. You know, yeah. the Stones just wanted to be a blues band for the longest time. They were like kind of pissed off that they had to start writing their own music. All right. So this is like a 1972 version of Friend of the Devil. The band's kind of, band sounds hot. It's got a lot of energy. Play a 77 one, which is the next one I, I queued sure. up here. I also like that every white band had to start incorporating reggae. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> a very short period of time. They yeah, all had to do reggae stuff curiously. and then disco. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. Yeah. I mean, that's the what I like about this band. Like, the kind of bones of the songs are there, but it, it's kind of just, like, indicative of whatever the guys in the band were into at the time, whether it's reggae, country, disco, whether they're into coke, LSD or heroin at a, at a given time, you know, those things all kind of affect the music. And it's, you know, the band would kind of just toy with these songs, you know, some, even on given tours, like you would listen to a Tennessee Jed one night and the next night you'd be like, why the hell are they playing this so slow? It would just be sort of like kind of what they felt like, which makes it really fun. You know, once you get a bass knowledge of these songs and like what you can expect you know that's when you open yourself up to surprise you know yeah that, the way you phrase it there kind of makes me think of sly stone or something where it's like all their music used to just be like everyday people it's super fast and upbeat and fun and then by the time of there's a riot going on it's just this like sludgy heroin induced like super mm. slow weird shit totally. not even heroin pcp <laughs> oh damn right that's the only real pcp album Unless you want to to get into Big Lurch. (laughs) Free Big Lurch, yeah. Maybe he's been freed by now. It's been like 20 years since he ate his roommate's liver or whatever. That guy would have died died of old age by now anyway. Who knows what he would have done with that liver? He could have drank himself to death. Yeah. (laughs) I'm okay. I'm going to look up Big Lurch. Is he free? So of the songs played so far, what's been the favorite? Hmm. Or what's been like the most interesting thing? I think the other one was interesting to me where I need to actually just go dig into that era more. Yeah, because it is sort of, it feels like a lot of people who I just would imagine hate the dead would love 60s dead. Because it kind of just sounds like, you know, a lot of the psych rock bands that we would listen to in 2011. You know, like... 60s Dead would have opened up for the OCs if they're around right now. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we move on okay. to tr- trucking? Sure. And this is a weird trucking because I chose it from uh, 1991. Oh, I wanted man. to get like a Bruce Hornsby, Vince Wellnick kind of vibe in here. 
Man, it looks like the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, they dress so fucking bad. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Lesh needed a, a wardrobe person so bad. Look at yeah, Bobby's shorts. Fucking tucking his t-shirt in. <laughs> yeah, they all really needed... Uh. Okay, here's an update on Big Lurch. He is still incarcerated. Well, that's probably good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's. Well, okay. I guess he could eat someone in jail. It's true. That's the thing. Like, that doesn't really prevent him from eating somebody. He's in there in a room with a guy all day long. Yeah, they don't he might feed get you that much. Yeah. It's insane how old Jerry looked. He would have been yeah. like 47. Yeah, He's, he looks oh, like 90. <laughs> He put like 30 years on his heart in a five-year period. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I can't explain it because like you look at photos of Jerry when he was like a teenager and you just see that's a 32-year-old man in those photos. But he always just looked that way. I, don't, I, can't, I can't explain it. Yeah, he was never really young looking. He always looked like a, like a wizened man. He also... Um, he kind of had a Rahm Emanuel thing going on because uh, he's missing his middle finger on his uh Is that true? On his picking oh, hand. really? It was like a woodworking accident where like the Rahm thing was like an Arby's meat slicer, which cut yeah, off his finger. Right. But yeah. yeah, if you like kind of look at Jerry playing, you'll you'll see that his picking hand is missing a uh, part of his finger. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now that you say that, it's obvious. Yeah. yeah. When did that happen? I think it was like, I think he was probably like 17, kind of same age wow. that it happened to Rom. Interesting. That almost makes it easier if you're, if you're only holding it between your thumb and your index finger. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, he was four years old. That's brutal. Oh, wow. Shit. Crazy. This song is going to make me get my CDL. <laughs> They should have had a big trucker fan base because they're already on the road anyway. True. They must have. They must have. I mean, they had Hell's Angels. It is, it's the, the same lifestyle. True, yeah. yeah. It is wild because, like, Bob Weir, who's singing a song in this video, looks like like a just a 90s dad. Short shorts, polo. And then something God, clicked man. maybe after Jerry died where like Bob just kind of turned into the Lorax. Like he's just this mountain man <laughs> yoga guy. It's, yeah. It's Twink death. It's a good look. Both are good At looks. At age 55. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. This is the most 90s thing that I've ever seen. Yeah. Some of it came back. Some of it looks cool. Yeah. But the short shorts, the cutoff short shorts, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like CCR singing about the bayou where it's like, none of you motherfuckers ever drove a truck. <laughs> Bunch of phonies. The song should be riding. Yeah, <laughs> riding in a, a tour bus. <laughs> as a general rule, I mean, I'm sure that there's ex uh, exceptions to this, but as a general rule, it's really annoying when a band makes a song about touring. True. Exo tour life. Yeah, exactly. Although that song at least has like nothing to do with touring, really. But all right, so I have kind of like three songs for that are all Jerry songs, all kind of like similar guitar jam kind of vibes. I'll let you guys pick. Should we do Eyes of the World, Scarlet Begonias, or Sugary? 
for the next one. Pick. Sugary. Okay, cool. Let's, Let's do it. it. A tight 19 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, like, it, it, it sounds, you know, like I'm fully indoctrinated into a, a jam band mindset. But this 19 minutes really does breeze by. This is, uh, <laughs> this is May 77, uh, May 28th, Hartford, Connecticut. This is on streaming services as two two terrapin, and I think it's like yeah, this, this is, is kind of song. like been the CD or the streaming album that I just kind of send to friends who are like, "What should I listen to first? Because like you know people okay. are gonna say Cornell seventy seven, which is great. People are also gonna say Vanita seventy two, which I also the Sugar Magnolias from that show, um, it's the Ogre show. But I think this kind of is just like a really good dead show that feels pretty accessible for anyone who would, who doesn't even know a song. Yeah, yeah. What I'll else is on the set? Oh, uh, the Terrapin Station on this record um, is awesome. Uh, it's it's kind of like three of my favorite songs aren't on it, but every, every version of every song that I kind of like sometimes would skip over is just one of the best versions of that song I've ever heard. You know, The Birth cool. is awesome. The Sugary obviously is amazing. Candyman is great. They got a good not fade away and a wharf rat. It does have a one more Saturday night, which is a good version of that song. <laughs> <laughs> and then it closes with US Blues, which I think is a good, oh, good cool. encore. Yeah, song. I like that song. Yeah. yeah. I guess it is kind of weird in a way that they they're so siloed off from the other big like 60s and 70s groups. Like if you've listened to Pink Floyd, you've probably also listened to Led Zeppelin, even though they don't really sound alike. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But Grateful Dead is weirdly siloed in a way. Yeah. With I the agree. exception of maybe like uh, like you were saying, like Working Man's Dead and American Beauty is like maybe the only exception. Yeah. Or like Jefferson Airplane. True. Yeah. Stuff from that same scene. Yeah, I think like only like Casey Jones and like obviously Touch of Grey had like kind of the radio thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's another thing I respect about them is I love a band with no hits that is super popular. Like Wilco is obviously that version of that for our era. Yeah. Wilco also huge deadheads. Yeah, they've been covering US Blues recently. Yeah, and they've they've also been uh, Phil Lesh's backing band a few times. There. Oh yeah, that was like in the suburbs or something. I remember yeah. seeing that show happen. But the Phil Lesh and like friends Rosemont Philco and... shows. They're pretty yeah, good. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't. I I paid no attention to that because I didn't listen to the Grateful Dead at all, even though that was recently. You know. Right. Are those sets out there? I mean, yeah. Um, they're not like on like I don't think they're on Spotify or anything like that. Like. One of the cool things about the dead is that every set is out there, man. Yeah, um, true. You could go on the just the internet archive. And I should check those out. Yeah, like, that'd like be I, interesting. I'm still like, even though I'm deep in it, like I can't do the audience tapes a lot of the time. Like sometimes the soundboard sounds great, but I really just appreciate the like CD mastering, like yeah, good perfect quality, quality that's on streaming yeah. services. I am intrigued by the idea of like Nels Klein being able to just fuck around for 15 minutes on a he song. He does a great like job. This, you know? And like, yeah, I've I kind of imagine. always said that Jeff is kind of like the closest analog to like Jerry Garcia as a singer. Like they kind of have the same kind of tone, weary kind of vibe going on. Yeah, yeah. Fairly subdued voice. Totally.
I'll definitely check out this whole album. Yeah, this one is really good. It's, you know, also, where do you all stand on, like, favorite guitar players? What do you kind of look for when you're, like, listening to guitar rock? Like, is, is Jerry's playing, like, doing anything for you? Or is it more... I think more... very different than what my favorite... Like, like, if I think of my favorite guitarist, it'll be, like, Wata from Boris. Maybe okay. Robert Fripp would be the only classic rock guy. Um, Omar from Mars Volta, I guess, is a little bit more in this territory. But even then, he's much more, like, chromatic and dissonant, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely pro- prize taste over uh, competency, you know what I mean? <laughs> totally. And I think that's kind of why I like Jerry. Like, it's not shredding. Like, every everything he's playing is just kind of dancing around the the melody of the yeah, song. Yeah, he, he just you know? noodles. Yeah. yeah. I guess at the end of the day, the truth is that the best guitarist to me is Johnny Greenwood. That's just yeah, the reality great. of it, but... Maybe we skip ahead here to Touch of Grey. Sounds good. So here's a keyboardist that we haven't really talked about tonight. This is Brent Midland, who is one of my, is, might be my favorite keyboardist in Dead History. Oh, man. Yeah, probably the best, the most competent player. Right. It's too bad he was addicted to crashing cars. <laughs> that was Keith. Uh, he was the key. Well, uh, Brent was addicted to heroin. I think it was both of them. Right. Well, that too. Yeah. The thrill of crashing a car, the only thing that can bring you back down to earth from that is heroin. It's a vicious cycle. <laughs> it's a good one-two punch. Although, of course, the real drug for crashing cars is alcohol, obviously. Billy Joel Classic. knows something about that. Josh, do you know about how when Billy Joel had his like DUI car crashes and stuff in the early 2000s, he blamed it on 9-11? Right. That is, that is one of my favorite excuses. <laughs> and like I'm sure so more funny. people than Billy Joel blamed bad behavior on 9-11. <laughs> yeah, actually, I didn't know this. Uh, you know when uh, Mayor Daley ripped up Miggs Field in the middle of the night? Oh, uh, right. He blamed that on 9-11, too, where he's like, we can't have an airport downtown anymore, so we need to destroy it in the middle of night with no oversight. Yeah, we have terrorists from Grand Haven, Michigan flying in. Can't have that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it was Donna Summer where when she was dying of lung cancer, she blamed it on 9-11 because she was like in New Jersey at the time. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, come on. Even as people who lived through it, I forget how wild those couple years were, you know? Yeah. That made us go crazy. We're seeing a little bit of it now. Oh, was, 100%. Like, this is the most through it the first time. The, yeah, the especially everything to the, in the Israel shit. Yeah, exactly. This is the That's most 9 11 esque time, time since then. It's a lesson to be. Yeah, Josh, I think by coming on here to talk about Grateful Dead, you've greatly mischaracterized yourself, where your newsletter is the exact opposite of just like spotlighting. Yeah. Like more underground <laughs> artists than instead we're just talking about one of the biggest bands ever from True. long ago. Well, I don't know. I, I love the big bands. I don't know. I just feel like it's more oh, useful. Because yeah. like there are people who are actually saw the Grateful Dead writing about him. And it's like, what do I have to say about the Grateful Dead that, you know, people who are 30 years older than me, you know, are already yeah, are doing. Exactly. But yeah, it was one of those things where it's just like, I don't know. 
You, you should see the icons when they're around. Like, I saw Bob Dylan for the first time in October, and it was incredible. Like, I really, yeah. it took me so long to be like, I'm a huge Dylan head, but like, I've heard, I had heard so many bad things about that show, and I just was terrified that I just didn't want my image of Bob Dylan in my head to be like diminished by a bad show. And I really regret not going to. What's your favorite Dylan era? Ooh. Um, so, like, I'm kind of like a sicko at this moment where I'm like <laughs> kind of not listening to anything pre 1968. It's kind of just like 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Like, um, the like, 70s, I think, is probably my all time favorite era. Like, I. Yeah, that's fair. A lot of people I, say that. I, I say that Planet Waves is my favorite Dylan record, but I've gotten really into like. Oh mercy! I had a big like Empire Burlesque phase, which sounds silly, but it's I think it's a great <laughs> album. I don't know. I the Under the Red Sky is the only Dylan record I really kind of hate, um, but I, I like a lot of them. I like all of them besides that. Every year I'll like do a full front to back listen, which usually takes a few weeks, but it's always so much fun. Yeah, yeah. I do feel what you're saying about like trying to see artists while they're still around. I've had that mentality too. And like by accident, I saw the final television show ever. Oh, amazing. Cause they played a uh, old town school like a few years back and then right. they just never played again. So like in, in retrospect, like five years later, it was like, Oh shit, that was just the last show period. You know? Yeah. And I'm so glad I did. Cause like I have, I have always loved them, but I have a newfound appreciation for just watching them do it. Like, Totally. Tom Verlaine is so interesting. He's always like playing with the volume knob constantly. Like, no one does that anymore, you know? I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because like now that I've made this like decision to like see the icons that I've never seen before, yeah. it's like, okay, I'm seeing the Grateful Dead. Spent way too much money to see them in Vegas. And then the next week, Neil Young, who I've never seen before, announces a show at Northerly Island. And it's just sort of like... Yeah, okay. it's like fuck. Maybe See, I should probably much. go to that too. Maybe <laughs> like I've never, I've never seen Neil Young either. But it's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, his live records are always great, and like I'm sure even now it's really good. Like my friends saw him do the like acoustic thing, and they said it was incredible. And yeah, I think I just gotta pony up. I've I've spent like ten dollars at the empty bottle way too many times. You know, like yeah, should <laughs> actually start paying money for tickets. So yeah, as the song ends, you know, like I'm realizing that like the way to like get into the Grateful Dead isn't to kind of do the like analyze fish sort of deal where you kind of just play a song and like hope the other person likes it as much as you do. Like it really kind of, I've put off the Grateful Dead for like, I don't know, 20 years of my life, really. Like I liked a couple things and it, I was always so against doing the full deep dive. And I think it just kind of, you have to hear that one song on your own and just kind of dive in yourself in order to get it, you know? Yeah, like you were saying, it's so intimidating because it, since it's built around like the live corpus, there's just an infinite amount of it. Yeah. But like you were also saying, you have more time than you think if you're just kind of listening passively here and there. Like, yeah, because like their at this music point, is meant for that. Yeah. Plenty like, hours to just have something playing. Yeah, and I think it's great. You don't even have to switch out records. You can just keep it playing all day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is sort of my workaround for being like 32 and 
uh, feeling like too ashamed to click on like a chill beats to write to YouTube link. <laughs> like, yeah, the totally. Grateful Dead. Oh, I hate that shit. It's I hate awful. when I hear the vinyl crackling yeah. VST and like the yeah. the purposely offbeat drums. Oh, it's the awful. Jay Dilla style. Oh, yeah. it makes me so. I hate it. I hate that. But I've never been like a person like as a writer. I've never been a person who can listen to music while I like write about it. But for some reason, the Dead kind of works where I'll just have it on and like I can knock out any draft. While just having yeah, like absolutely. a random dead show on in the background. I don't know what it is. It just kind of, it's like you're focusing on the music, but you can also kind of zone out for a little bit. And I think that's cool. Yeah, totally. I think, uh, well, first of all, like, thanks for stopping by, but uh, we'll have to have you on again in the future for something radically different than this. But I'm glad right we uh, had the chance to do it. Yeah, this was super fun. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You got plugs? Oh, um, yeah, I do. I mean, not really. Uh, you could just subscribe to my newsletter if you're listening to this. Uh, it's noexpectations.fyi. It's a weekly newsletter where I don't write about the Grateful Dead. I kind of just write yeah. about <laughs> Chicago indie rock bands and new albums from artists that I feel like are worth your attention. And it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, eventually I'll write about the Grateful Dead. When I go to the Sphere, there'll be a piece about the Grateful Dead on there. Yeah, Absolutely. And maybe you'll have to report back to us, too, how that goes. Yeah, the Sphere Report, Fortune Kit. Let's do it. 